And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Patrick K. O'Donnell, best-selling author of Washington's Immortals and author of the new book, The Indispensables. Uh, Patrick, it's an honor to have you on with us today. It's an honor to be with you, Dan. Thank you. I'm sitting here in the studio holding your book. Um, This is a fairly thick book, The Indispensables. And I first found out about this because you did an interview with Steve Bannon uh, on his TV show. And I thought, wow, i got to support this guy. This is a really neat book. Uh, Can you tell us just a little bit overview of what your book is about, Patrick? The book is about the Marblehead men and specifically the the individuals that are in the town of Marblehead, located about 16 miles north of Boston. But during the American Revolution, this was the the critical hub of the Revolutionary War movement. But these were the indispensable men that formed something called the, the Marblehead Regiment, which was in the key inflection points, almost all the key inflection points of the early American Revolution. And they play a crucial role in saving our country multiple times from utter destruction. Um, first, at something called the American Dunkirk in, a, after the Battle of Brooklyn, where they saved the army by, by transporting it across the East River, uh, which is a mile long and, and really impassable that night. But it was the skills of the Marblehead Mariners, who were the most able and skilled seamen in the Continental Army, they're able to bring the army across against all odds and uh, save it from utter destruction. And they do it again uh, multiple times at a place called the Battle of Pelham Bay. But uh, the most famous is a painting of, that I used on, the, um, on the, the jacket of the Indispensables, and that's the crossing of the Delaware. All other uh, attempts to cross that night by other portions of Washington's army all failed utterly. Um, it was only the Marblehead men who had crewed the boats, the Durham boats and the flat boats, at, um, at, the cro- at what's now known as Washington's Crossing. They, we were able to bring the, the army across and, and change the course of the Revolutionary War. But that's just a tiny portion of, of this story, which goes all the way back to 1769, where, which is the opening scene of my book. Well, it's it's a fascinating book. I've only made it partway through. I found it interesting, too, that these Marblehead men, um, they were rugged fishermen, and they fished in the Grand Banks, and that's a hard place to fish and survive. Yeah, this is, this is the, these are the most treacherous waters in the world at the time, Dan, uh, the, and, and today even still. They're on small schooners, uh, fishing boats, and they have to catch t- um, cod fish which weighed, in many cases, well over 100 pounds, 150 pounds. These are mm. massive fish, and it would require all their strength to haul them in. But they also have to deal with Mother Nature in the most treacherous waters in the world. This is, you know, massive waves, uh, storms, nor'easters, and in many cases, scores of men would die every year just by, the, by Mother Nature, by the seas themselves. They would claim many lives. Um, and this made um, some very, very tough individuals. Um, they had to go through, um, you know, these incredible waters to survive. But they had to do it as a team. And many of the men um, on these boats were, 
it's they're multi-ethnic. Um, you have uh, Native Americans, African Americans, free African Americans, um, as well as their white brothers and some even some Hispanics that all kind of crew these boats. And then it later translates into the American Revolution, where you have uh, diversity, but also incredible unity within this this regiment. Um, but that's they, they're also the mainsprings of the revolution at the time. Um, intellectually, a lot of the, our ideas of liberty and freedom flow from these early patriots in Marblehead, including um, Elbridge Gerry, our future vice president. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the term gerrymandering is named after him. He, say, mm-hmm. he signed it into law, but it was not. It wasn't something he really. Uh, it was his idea, um, but there, there's a lot there. Uh, he's he's really, in terms of, he's the intellectual mainspring um, with his mentor, Samuel Adams, and they, they really helped found or shape the early revolutionary warriors. And um, they also, the Marbleheaders are very important because they finance the war. Um, they're some of the richest men in North America, uh, fortunes are made on cod. Uh, cod is just extremely lucrative. You fish it, and then you can trade it all over the world. You put it in uh, in barrels of salt, and um, and then trade it for other goods. And these men had established massive uh, trading fleets and contacts around the world, and that would become a vital, absolutely vital to the early American Revolution because. It was about foreign alliances at the beginning. We did not have a vital component to the Revolutionary War organically in the United. It, it in the colonies at the time. It was uh, gunpowder. Uh, gunpowder was basically um, had gone by the wayside after the French and Indian War. There were a number of bans um, on its importation. Uh, its domestic production was shut down in, inside the colonies, so it had to be brought in, um, and it would be the Marbleheaders that would bring in the bulk of the, the gunpowder in 1774 and 75, 76. And it would come from the Dutch West Indies as well as um, from their crucial trading partner in Spain, which they um, they would establish our, our first foreign alliance in Spain um, through these trading contacts. And our first foreign aid would come from the King of Spain in 74. That's the part I found rather fascinating. And... Um, the colonists needed their gunpowder, and the British realized, no, we don't want them to have gunpowder and arms because uh, we want complete control over them, and things are starting to heat up here. And so I, I thought it was fascinating to read your chapter on the gunpowder, and um, I, I could relate because, I'll be honest, I'll confess, as a young man, I, I like to experiment with things. As a boy, you know, in my parents' basement, <laughs> <laughs> had, a, had a little chemistry kit, and somehow I found out the formulation for gunpowder, and I thought, hey, I want to try try this stuff, you know? <laughs> and, uh, well, everything was perfectly safe, but potentially it wouldn't have been. But the hard part to get was that potassium nitrate, the saltpeter. And I was able to relate to the story in the book. Can you describe that just a little bit? Do a deep dive into that for just a moment. The, 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 the three components of gunpowder be uh, charcoal sulfur and saltpeter or potassium nitrate and, and potassium nitrate is very hard to create um, it comes it forms naturally in sort of privies and outhouses and on caves for instance like bat caves 
where the uh, droppings from the bats would, would form the potassium nitrate over, over many, many years, decades, mm-hmm. centuries. Um, but it also can be produced, but it has there's a very long process, and it's tedious. Um, and it requires uh, a fairly high level of sophistication to create it in, ma- in large quantities. And, and prior to the American Revolution, we did not have, for the most part, domestic production in the in the in the colonies of yeah. gunpowder. The, the the British recognized this, and they knew that if he took away our powder supply, there would not be an American Revolution, or there That's would not right. be a, a Revolutionary War. It, it would be just like they had done in in Ireland, and they had, and they also had successfully done in Scotland in the forty five. Uh, they knew that if they could disarm Americans, they could they could basically uh, impose their will upon us, and that was what they were doing. Um, there was a lot of interference um, on the part of the the, the, the British government and the king um, in in the seventeen sixties and seventeen seventies within the colonies, and it was at Marblehead that they really faced it head on. The opening scene of my book is about impressment and there this is a horrendous act mm. uh, basically the royal navy would pull up alongside of the the schooners from marblehead and and say well guess what you're going to be now a member of the royal navy if you like it or not just like a life commitment and and it was just like that and um and this is a situation where it didn't matter if you had a family or if you were a million you know if you were a you had a massive fortune. You just were impressed at the point of a gun and you would serve and you would never leave. And in most cases you died on the Royal Navy ships. Wow. And, uh, the opening scene is from the plate uh, uh, the ship, the pit pack. And, and there are Marblehead sailors on board that, that know that they're, that they're going to face slavery effectively in the Royal Navy and death. And they fight back and they fight back. Uh, it's a very dramatic scene in the book. Um, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. A, a, a bag of salt spills across the deck, um, as the boarding party comes aboard and the marbleheaders are armed with harpoons and axes. <laughs> and they are in, in kind of a defensible portion of the ship. And they tell the, the British officer that leading the boarding party to, to stand back, they're not going to come. And they literally draw a line in the sand or the, the, the salt and say, if you cross it, you're a dead man. And that British officer ignored the order and received a harpoon right to the throat wow. by Michael Corbett. And, um, it's really quite an extraordinary story. That's it's documented because America's first super lawyer, John Adams defended Michael Corbett, the marbleheader, and would get him off, if you will, from a charge of murder. And uh, that, but that's that sets the tone of the book, and it also sort of sets the the level of resistance that these men are willing to put up against a you know a uh, a, a government that's three thousand miles away that's trying to impose their will upon them through bureaucracy, through taxes. They try to inst- they, I mean, a series of events take place: the Boston massacre, an atrocity which Marbleheaders have a role in in, 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 a, in a minor way. And also, one of my main characters, who's not a Marbleheader, but his mistress, 
resides in Marblehead, and this is Dr. Benjamin Church, who's arguably one of America's first and greatest traitors uh, to the American cause. He's a friend of General Gage, and he provides General Gage with the location of gunpowder supplies that the Marblehead headers had had secreted away uh, in various locations. And, and also what we're doing. Uh, he, he, he sits on the Committee of Correspondence and Committee of Safety, which are uh, euphemisms, but they're, they're incredibly, uh, the Committee of Supplies, these are, these are really the, the first government that we have in the colonies prior to the American Revolutionary War, and they're in Massachusetts, and it's Marbleheaders that sit on all of these committees. And they're doing all the planning for, you know, they, to protect themselves. And they realize that um, the gunpowder is the crucial supply. And they're gathering it from using their, their, um, their, their ships, their supply lines, their, their trading routes, if you will. And they're converting them into supply lines and bringing in this crucial resource along with guns and other supplies. Uh, but they're also making the crucial decisions in this government, which will then... It, it's sort of taking on the role of what Congress has, which they that would will it'll assume that role within uh, months or about six months. But this is a uh, aspect of the American Revolutionary War that I don't think most people realize. But all these key decisions were being made, but mostly many of them by Marbleheaders yeah. and how our country was being formed. I find it fascinating. Um, today we're talking with military historian Patrick K. O'Donnell, and he's written this new book, wonderful book, with the title The Indispensables, The Diverse Soldier Mariners Who Shaped the Country, Formed the Navy, and Rode Washington Across the Delaware. And indeed, there is a beautiful picture on the front, and one of our grandchildren was admiring that picture as it sat next to my chair uh, up in the living room. Um, let's talk just really quick. You mentioned something that caught my eye also in the book, and that is the multi-ethnicity and the the union that these folks had. Today we're, we're pushed with this narrative of 1619 or whatever it is that, um, you know, slavery and we're founded on this racial tension and all that, but I didn't see that here among the Marbleheaders. No, um, in many cases, that that narrative has been completely demolished by the great Revolutionary War scholars that are out there. This book is about the truth and and how you know there was a lot of things that were going on that that caused a a political movement in the 1660s, beginning in 1665 with the Stamp Act, where a central government is interfering with the lives of Americans. And they boldly um, declare economic war against the greatest economic power at the time, the, the crown. Um, and they, they realize that their markets in, in North America are the most fertile and lucrative in the world. It's America that has the highest standard of living at the time in the world, arguably. And it's also a point of just extreme growth financially and economically. And um, the colonists recognize that. And they recognize that their, their labor and their goods uh, 
um, are having a major impact on the on the crown um, in the sense that they're there's they, they realize that if they you know they're being interfered with and they realize that if if they cut off that's the supply of goods um, and through a non-importation exportation agreement they can have a detrimental effect on the on the British economy that's right which is which and the British are trying to impose their will upon them and it's a series of atrocities that really kind of amplify this interference the first the Boston massacre where Crispus Attucks who's an african-american is slain it's interesting the first the person that does the autopsy is dr. Benjamin Church trick um, and he has relationships with the other doctors that are that are mm-hmm. central characters in this book dr. Joseph Warren who's the president of the provincial um, con- Ma- Massachusetts Congress and also really a, the revolution one of the key leaders in the revolution along with his friend who's an obscure figure uh, dr. Nathaniel Bond who's a marble header that it has never been written about until the indispensables. And it turns out that, you know, all this interference is going on. You've got the crown imposing their will 3000 miles away through bureaucracy where they're trying to enforce mm-hmm. specific ways that they can trade. You have the atrocity that occurs at the Boston massacre. And then you have the Boston tea party where marble hunters are also involved. And that's looked at as a, as a, um, a really a high crime of, of terrorism, if you will, uh, treason. And they decide, the Crown decides to close the entire port of Boston, <laughs> which second to Marblehead was, it was the largest port in the colonies, and then it was, Marblehead's the second in Massachusetts. It puts out of work thousands of individuals, hmm. which creates even more resentment when you can't work. And then the Marbleheaders are given something called the Fisheries Act, where they can't fish the Grand Banks anymore. Oh, wow. So their livelihood is snuffed out, basically. And they oh, know yeah. it. And they're, these are men that are angry. And, um, and then, oh, by the way, the Crown comes in and decides to install only Crown judges. Prior to that, it would be elected officials from the colonies. So they knew that their justice system would be completely based on whatever the Crown's will was. Um, and then their government was um, eliminated. By General Gage, and then oh, the uh, you know, I mean, it was disarmament. It was all about taking away the gunpowder, sure. not making sure any guns came in. And one of the first scholars that really maps out all of General Gage's early operations, and, and they were done very deliberately. They were surgical operations to remove the gunpowder supply, and all of these things. Um, change the zeitgeist from political revolution to full-blown war, right. and and that's it's a it's it's a path that these ta- they they take that the events take. Um, uh, really, the, the a catalyst is something called the Somerville Powder Alarm, where Gage raids the powder arsenal near Cambridge, and the, the colonists know that if they are they have no powder, they can't defend themselves. Correct. And the, 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 there's a massive gathering in, in Boston Common where there are literally thousands of Americans descend from all around uh, the, the small towns of, of Boston, in and around Boston and Massachusetts, even further co- colonies, uh, because they, um, they're protesting uh, what's going on. And it's, it gauges alarmed 
There are some accounts that had 10,000 people descended on the common. And this is a town of a little more, a little more than 10,000. But so it's an enormous uh, number. Gage only has, you know, roughly a little over 2,000 troops, 2,500 or so. So he's really outnumbered, and he sees where things are going, and he urges for reinforcements. And the crown um, basically says, "Look, you're going to crush this rebellion with brute force, and we're going to send. Ultimately, they're going to send the they're almost." Two thirds of their army over, along with uh, ten, well over tens of thousands of um, Hessian, um, Hessian allies. There, wow. you know, I mean, this is a, a major effort to destroy uh, America, to destroy the, the will of the American people at the time. Yeah, well, I, I find it fascinating too to kind of kind of imagine what the mind was like of one of these patriots. And and their boldness, their lack of fear. I mean, they may have had fear, but they put it aside for a greater cause. And they uh, did, and it was a, it had cost them everything in many cases. As I bring out in the in the indispensables, many of these men would go bankrupt, and women bankrupt after the war. They'd have PTSD. That it would cost them their lives. Yep. Marblehead would go from the, a thriving community to a bankrupt community after wow. the American Revolutionary War. Well, so they cost them everything, and they have, most people have no concept of of this cost to freedom that we now enjoy today. That is, I mean, let's face it; it's a uh, in the digital age, it can be snuffed out in an instant. Oh yes, oh yes. Um, we've got maybe two or three minutes left today. We're talking with Patrick K. O'Donnell, and he has written the book "The Indispensables." Wonderful book. And uh, he's also written like 11 other uh, books. I wanted to mention one thing. Uh, We don't have much time, but uh, you actually were on the battlefield as a a combat historian. Can you tell us really brief of your work there in Fallujah? Yes. uh, The book that I wrote was called We Were One, and um, I was a volunteer civilian combat historian. And um, it's one of the first to really ever do what I did. I was in uniform, and um, I chronicled the story of 1st Platoon Lima Company through the entire battle, or most of the battle. I was, a, um, I was with an elite Marine Corps unit prior to that, Marine Recon. And um, this is a book about best friends, eight best friends, oh. and it's their story. Only three actually survived. Uh the um, conflict in Iraq, and it's a it's a very uh, it's a relic of the Battle of Fallujah in the sense that it's wow. it's a oral history, but it's a narrative history. But it's in their own words, and this is what I did with the indispensable too. I use all primary as much as I possibly can primary sources to, to chronicle the stories in my books, and this this is about First Platoon's struggle from the beginning of the Iraq war through initially, but then it's really, it's hyper-focused in on the last the four months right before Fallujah and in the battle of Fallujah where this platoon takes arguably the most casualties of the entire battle. Mm. Um, and I was there. Uh, I was not behind the desk. I was there with them. I went house to house. Wow. And, um, it was a, uh, it's probably the most personal book I've ever written, and it's on the 
the Commandant's reading list. Um, That's really which is neat. required reading for the Marine Corps along with my other prior to that there was another, another book I wrote called Gimme Tomorrow, which is on this the brother platoon, if you will, or close to it, that was in the Korean War. Mm. And I met them when I came home from Fallujah and they took me to lunch. And they said, Well we you carried our battle guide on in the Battle of Fallujah. And I'm like, Oh really? <laughs> I didn't know that. And we held a, a, a key hill, Aww, the Chosen a... Reservoir, against a Chinese regiment. Wow. And uh, I was like, whoa, that's amazing. A small wow. company against a regiment. And this is you know, 200 men against 2,000 against all odds. Uh, yeah. in a, you know, 20 below zero, 30 below zero weather. It's incredible. Well, these books are are valuable, and I would encourage our listeners to uh, check them out. Uh, the author is Patrick K. O'Donnell, and Patrick, um, do you have a website where people can go to yeah, and sure. learn more? My website is patrickkodonnell.com, and then my I'm on Twitter at uh, at combat historian, and mm-hmm. uh, that's where you can get my you know kind of updates on where I'm at the book tour the. The Indispensables is our, it was an instant bestseller on publication day. We've gone through three reprintings, and, and it's just had an amazing, uh, a lot of amazing reviews at the Wall Street Journal and the Associated Press. Well, I really appreciate it because I think we need to uh, acquire a mindset in our current situation. Um, we're... We're close to losing our country if we go the, the route of communism, and I don't want to see us go that route. Patrick O'Donnell, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.